Very quick before we start our podcast, I would like to give a quick shout out to all of our new supporters. Thank you, Herschel, Lydia, Don, Craig, Don, and Doug. We really appreciate your donations to our podcast as it helps us with our monthly costs. It is because of you that we are able to keep researching and paying for our websites and service provider. If you would like to donate, please go to ohiomysteries.com, click on the Patreon or PayPal button on the very top. Please consider donating as every dollar counts. Thanks again. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of More Than You Believe You Are by Michael McFarlane of Cleveland. Michael is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. your co-host Steve Yoder and with me is our award-winning journalist Paula Schleiss who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi everybody. You know silence can be so painful especially when that silence comes from a perpetrator who holds all the answers. And in tonight's case police made an arrest and the prosecutor got a conviction. And yet it's hard to feel like justice was fulfilled because a little girl is still missing. A coroner will never be able to rule on her cause of death. And her family may never know the full story of what happened that rainy dark night that Erica Baker died. It was 1999 and Erica was a happy and carefree nine-year-old, a third grader at Indian Riffle Elementary School in Kettering, Ohio, a suburb of Dayton. Erica had three brothers, Jason, Greg Jr., and Logan, between the ages of 11 and 16. But she was the youngest and the only girl. So her parents and grandparents often stressed to her repeatedly the dangers of talking to strangers. But sometimes you don't have to talk to a stranger to cross paths with them. And on February 7, Erica's life intersected with strangers in a very violent way. Erica and her brothers had spent the weekend with their dad, Greg Baker. He lived in nearby Huber Heights. Erica's parents were divorced, so when their visit with dad was over, Greg took his children back to Kettering. They and their mom, Melissa Baker, lived on Probst Drive with their grandmother, Pam Schmidt. 
Greg and Melissa had been separated for at least three years. Greg was a driver for Builder Square and Trotwood, still rehabilitating from spinal and leg injuries suffered in a car accident and a minor heart attack the previous Thanksgiving. There was a park there and a pond about the width of a football field. Carol and Rex Strine lived in the neighborhood and saw Erica and her pup as they took their own walk in the rain around the pond. They lapped the park, and about 10 minutes later, they spotted the dog again. But this time, it was alone, cowering even as it dragged its leash behind it. In February, it gets dark fast, and when Erica didn't return home by 5.30 p.m., her brothers went out to look for her. Maybe she stopped in to visit a friend or paused to chat with a neighbor. When they couldn't find her, they continued to Indian Riffle Park. And when they couldn't find her there, they returned home and the family called police. It was 8 p.m. At some point, and I couldn't tell when or how, they were reunited with that little Shih Tzu and discovered it had a bruise on its back. The police and the community assembled at stunning speed. Before the clock struck midnight, three dozen volunteers were combing the wooded areas. Police dogs were sniffing the route Erica would have likely taken. Five boats were slowly crossing the pond, dragging poles along the 12-foot bottom, and rescue workers had already donned their wetsuits and slipped into the water. Erica's parents stood by the pond, waiting. It was hard to know what to hope for. They feared she would be found, perhaps the victim of a slip from walking too close to the shoreline. They feared she wouldn't be found, and all the horrible thoughts that come with that scenario. The next day, the pond was drained entirely, pumps sucking the 2.9 million gallons of water into a storm grate. And the sunrise brought out more volunteers, nearly 400 of them, all instructed by police on how to conduct a search in a four-mile circumference of Erica's home. Some were sent out to look through woods. Others passed out flyers to homeowners throughout the east side of Kettering. Police set up traffic checkpoints, stopping motorists to ask if they had seen the girl and interviewing every registered sex offender in the area. The FBI and 30 fire departments as far as Columbus and Cincinnati offered assistance. I'd say the trail went cold, but there wasn't even a trail to begin with. That little Shih Tzu Jamie was the only witness to what had happened to Erica, and obviously he wasn't talking. The TV show America's Most Wanted featured the case, and actress Sarah Jessica Parker, a Cincinnati native, by the way, even made public service announcements for TV and radio broadcasts appealing for leads. By February of 2000, it was clear that the police knew something, or at least knew somebody who knew something, but they couldn't get what they wanted. Publicly, all they could say was they had four likely suspects. Things got a little clearer in 2002 when the Montgomery County prosecutor tried to get a public defender named Beth Lewis to share information told to her by a client who was now dead. 
The dead woman's name was Jan Franks, a drug addict who died of an overdose in 2001 while staying at a Dayton homeless shelter. Police believed she was a witness to what had happened to Erica. A Montgomery County judge ordered the attorney to disclose the communications she had with Jan Franks, but the attorney refused. Officials used an obscure Ohio law that allowed Frank's widower, Shane Franks, to sign a posthumous waiver of confidentiality. But the attorney still refused to share what Jan Franks had told her. What followed was a volley of appeals that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court and in the end required Beth Lewis to share what her dead client had told her. But before the court case reached its conclusion, police had another suspect, a living one this time. In December of 2004, they identified him as Christian J. Gabriel, a 33-year-old from Springfield, Ohio. At the time, he was serving a nine-month sentence for a felony count of receiving stolen property in Clark County, and he had been Jan Frank's boyfriend. Turns out, he was identified as a possible witness to Erica's death within months of the event. He'd even been given a polygraph, which, best I can tell, was considered inconclusive. At first, Gabriel said he didn't know anything about Erica's death, and that if Jan Franks had witnessed it, she had never said anything to him about it. He said he was a father himself and would never hide a child's death, and that if Franks had fingered him as an accomplice, well, she was a crackhead who would say anything. But eventually, his story changed many times. And finally, here's the tale he settled on. Gabriel said he, Jan Franks, and two of his roommates had been shoplifting at a Kettering department store when a police officer arrived to investigate an accident. But they were afraid the police officer might actually be looking for them, and so they jumped into the two-seat cargo van they had and sped away. Gabriel said he was already drunk and sat in the passenger seat, and the Jan Franks took the wheel while his roommates piled into the back of the van. He said while they were driving, he felt a thump, and Franks stopped the van. That's when they found Erica crumpled in a heap on the street where they had hit her. He said there was no blood and that he tried to resuscitate her, but that it seemed clear to everyone that she was dead. He said he suggested taking her to a hospital, but everyone was afraid to get into trouble. He and Franks, by the way, both had criminal records. So they lifted her into the van and took off. Gabriel said they drove to his apartment, which was above a bar on Wyoming Street. And there they met with a drug dealer and smoked crack while deciding what to do next. Later that night, the four drove to Huffman Dam Metro Park and the other three carried the body into the woods while Gabriel stayed behind retching. Kettering police and the Montgomery prosecutor were not buying the story. That's one of the reasons they needed attorney Beth Lewis to share what Jan Franks had told her. 
Now, officials thought the story was more like this. Gabriel was the driver of the van, and Frank's was his only passenger. There was no evidence to suggest his roommates had been in the van, and they denied it. They also told police Frank's never drove that van, which made it likely that Gabriel was the one behind the wheel. Investigators believe that under the influence, Gabriel was driving westbound on Glengarry Drive near the intersection of Powhatan Place about 4 p.m. when he struck Erica. He made the decision not to get her help. He made the choice to bury her body rather than allow her family to have it. Of course, there was no evidence. All they had was one dead suspect in Jan Franks and a second suspect whose confession could only lead to a charge of gross abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. And those charges, unlike murder or homicide, have a statute of limitations and time was running out. Just before the deadline window closed, prosecutors charged Gabriel. A trial was held in October of 2005, and a jury found him guilty on the abuse and tampering charges after just three hours of deliberation. He was sentenced to six years in prison. That same year, both before and after his trial, Gabriel led police on a wild goose chase in search of Erica's body. First, he said they took her to the dam at Huffman Metro Park off Ohio 4, a special canine unit trained to detect bodies went along. They searched the area for months and found nothing. Gabriel then admitted he only gave that location to the police to get them off his back. He said he was actually new to the Dayton area and he didn't know the area well. And he's not the one who drove Erica there anyway. Then he offered other suggestions. Stony Hollow, a landfill off of Vance Road in Dayton, Eastwood Metro Park Lake, and Caesar Creek State Park. Police checked them all out. Nothing was ever found. In the end, investigators said they believed Gabriel buried Erica somewhere in Caesar Creek State Park. So why won't Gabriel come clean about where Erica is? One possibility, her remains might reveal that she wasn't dead when Gabriel lifted her off the street and drove her off to a burial site. Maybe she wasn't even dead when she was placed in the ground. It's a horrible, gruesome thought, and one her family has had to live with for 20 years. Last year, her family spoke to the Dayton Daily News about the agony of not knowing where Erica is. Her father, Greg, said, Our family has been through hell and high water through this whole ordeal. And even though police are satisfied they got their man, and he did serve some time, police haven't given up either. Kettering Detective Vince Mason said last year, I'm reading through the entire case file. There are a lot of nooks and crannies to dig through, and that's what I'm working on. My whole goal is just to bring her home. 
the cops had actually never stopped looking. Back in 2013, after learning Gabriel and Franks once lived in a fishing lake near Ohio 4 and Eastwood Lake, they conducted a search of the area, hoping to find her. Interestingly, the lake gave up two vehicles and a boat, but not Erica. Christian Gabriel was released from prison in 2011. And when he was released, it was Erica's grandma, Pam Schmidt, who went to the jail to pick him up and take him home. She was hoping the intimate moment would get him to open up, reveal Erica's location, or maybe some new details about her death. But it didn't happen. A recent story said Gabriel now lives out of state. That hasn't stopped Melissa and Greg Baker and their sons, now grown men who missed out on their sister's childhood, from pleading with him through the media to come clean. Let her come home, Greg Baker said. Let us have her. Anyone with information in this case can call 937-296-2583. That's Kettering Police. Detective Mason said, if the chance to prosecute anybody for anything ever comes up, that's the way it is. When it comes to Erica, I'm reading everything I can, and I'm willing to listen to anybody that wants to talk to me. But my goal is just to bring her home. Erica has a grave marker now, a beautiful black granite tombstone with a pair of butterflies in flight. Where her death date should be, it says simply, missing. Oh, the year after Gabriel's conviction, that's when Beth Lewis, the attorney who had been fighting not to share her client's story, finally agreed to stop fighting the courts and tell Jan Frank's story. I found a story that she said whatever she had to say to a grand jury, but that testimony was never made public. All right, well, here's the part of the program where we invite an Ohio Mysteries listener to come on as an armchair detective. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast. And the answer is that some women were seizing power or escaping slavery or spying for their country or creating artistic masterpieces while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, joining us tonight is Shelly from Wilmington, Ohio. Hi, Shelly. Hi. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm 32 years old, and I have a boyfriend, and I work at the Wilmington Public Library. Ah, uh, what a great job. What do you do there? 
Uh, a little bit of everything. Uh, we're pretty small. Do you take questions from people who call in, like a reference librarian? Yeah, yeah, sometimes. I love reference librarians. They are just like my lifeline to the world. But maybe, you know, I mean, sure, I got a cell phone in my pocket now, but there are still some things that, you know, only a librarian can help you with. Yeah, or, I mean, especially where I live, it's pretty rural, and um, you'd be surprised how many people actually don't have internet, so it's harder for them to find things. Now, Clinton County, you are pretty close to this area that we're talking about today, right? Um, Yeah, so the neighborhood that I live in actually dead ends into part of the Caesars Creek Lake. Caesar Creek State Park, the police had been taken to several places by Gabriel, and in the end, they kind of settled on thinking it was Caesar Creek State Park. Why do you think that is? I don't really know why they settled on Caesars Creek, because it's kind of far away from Kettering. Maybe they settled on it because it's such a huge place. She could literally be anywhere, and it's possible that she might never be found because it's so big and there's so many places like it's very hilly and you know, there's obviously the lake and it's huge too. There's no way they could drain that huge lake. Yeah. The other places that he took them to, they probably could have had a better chance of finding her if she had been there. You know, there was a landfill and there was a smaller, you know, Metro Park Lake. Caesar Creek is probably the one site that he took them to that they would never be able to find her unless he was very specific. Right. What did you think about when I read that the grandma, Erica's grandma, went and picked him up when he was released from, from jail? I was so touched by that. Like, I, you know the inner strength that she had to find to go do that in the hopes that that drive home, she might be able to talk him into revealing something they didn't know. I had, I don't know if I could have done that. I mean, what'd you think about that? Yeah, that would be really hard to do. And I thought, honestly, I thought that was so sad because um, she said that he didn't tell her anything at all. And that's that would have been the perfect opportunity for him to come clean if anything had happened or if he knew anything and he chose not to. I can't even imagine what she felt like when that drive was over and she realized that it didn't work and she didn't get anything, you know, that she wanted. That that just yeah. had to be so heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, I think this particular homicide is so different than any homicide that we've done before. The idea of, you know, a little girl, I mean, she wasn't, it's, you know, for to believe his story, she wasn't killed intentionally, you know, it was an accident. Mm -hmm. And it makes me so angry that somebody, you know, I, I know they were drunk and they were scared because they had, you know, criminal rap sheets. But it makes me so angry that I mean, they might have been able to save her or at the very least save the family the agony of all these years of not having her. How selfish to just take that little life and just throw it away and torture her family for the next decades. 
But see, that's the thing that I don't understand. If it truly was an accident, then why didn't one of the allegedly four people involved, why didn't one of them say something? Now, the police seem to think that Gabriel had said his two roommates were with them. And in the end, police, at least publicly, chose to believe the roommates that they were not there. But I don't know. If you, if you, you know, hit a little girl with your car and then hide her, bury her, and then you come home, you're going to act differently. Like, you know, you're going to act paranoid or you just act really suspicious. And I, I think they probably would have picked up on that or maybe in one of his you know, alcoholic episodes or drug and fueled episodes, he would have said something. I don't know how you not showing your personality that you had just experienced something like that, especially if you're doing drugs and alcohol. I mean, that stuff comes through. You know, I had heard a story. Oh, it was incredible. It was years ago, maybe couple decades or more ago where somebody had hit somebody on the street the person they hit went through their windshield so their head went through their windshield and it was a woman who was driving it's coming back to me little bits and pieces and this woman drove home with this person speared through their windshield and that person was alive and took this person home, parked in the garage while trying to decide what to do because they didn't want to report it. And when they finally caught this person, she talked about how she would go out to the car and tell the person who was bleeding to death in her windshield, I'm sorry, I don't know what else to do. And then she waited for that person to bleed out and die. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It was, I know. It's, how do people do? I don't know. I don't understand how people can do these things. I mean, I understand being scared and, you know, freaked out about something like that. But in the end, I would think that you would do the right thing and either try to get the person help or call the police. I would think that it would be better for you mentally to say, oh, my God, made a horrible mistake here. Um, let's call the police. Let's let's take care of this now. And then I will be able to live the rest of my life knowing that it's over and I did what I could after I made the mistake. Rather than live the rest of your life knowing that you are torturing an entire family. Yeah. You know, I don't see how mentally that's better than having admitted what you did back when you did it. Well, I would think also that if they had, you know, called the police right away or, you know, or took her to the hospital, they probably would have got a lesser jail sentence than they would today. They might have. They might have. And there is definitely a sense of peace that comes with knowing you did the right thing. And that was just the right, that would have been the right thing to do. 
Yeah. But this poor family, they have not given up. The Kettering police have not given up. I was really touched when I saw that article just last year, the police saying they still look for her. They are still hoping to find her remains someday. And I thought, you know, God bless those detectives for not giving up. Yeah. Um, I did find something a little interesting about um, Erica's mom and her grandma Back in 2003, they went on the Montel Williams show when he used to have the psychic Sylvia Brown on his show. Yeah. And she apparently told them that Erica had still been alive and she seemed to think that Erica had been kidnapped by a black woman driving a black pickup truck. And this woman took Erica to Ann Arbor, Michigan and she, she seemed to insinuate that the woman was trying to either sell Erica like a human trafficking type situation or sell her for drugs. <laughs> Are you kidding me? So. Well, oh, man. Yeah. You know, I, I know people want to turn to psychics when they're desperate, just looking for anything. And frankly, There are police officers that have talked to psychics, so I guess part of me wants to stay open-minded. But what a horrible thing to leave a parent with. Your kid is alive and being sex trafficked. What a horrible thing to leave a parent with. I found a few um, theories. A few other people thought like similar theories about her that, I mean, because it does happen, like, uh, there have been cases where people have been found decades later, you know. Absolutely. I mean, the three women in uh, in, Cleveland. in Cleveland. I mean, yeah. we could, that will forever be an example of how until you f- have a body, there is always that possibility. And then there's also, you know, what was his name? Joseph Fritzl in Europe, where he kept his daughter captive for I don't know 20 or 30 some years and and then there was another case um, I believe it was in California I cannot remember the girl's name but she was just found a few years ago she had been kidnapped at her bus stop in I think 1991 and uh, they just found her a few years ago I wonder if that's the one there was a case where they had uh, kidnapped a girl and when they found her, she had given birth twice, and she yeah. was basically chained to inside a tent in the backyard. Yeah, I think that's the same one. That. Might have been the same one. So that's true. I mean, until and I guess that's probably part of what goes into the torture of not having Erica's body. You know, until you have her body, there you're vulnerable to all these suggestions or ideas you just don't get that closure yeah but with this case I I really don't think anything like that happened I honestly think that they probably accidentally hit her and then got scared and hit her body somewhere I think so, too. And I would love to know what that attorney, Beth Lewis, finally told the grand jury when she decided to talk. Because Jan Franks, you know, she had the confidentiality of her attorney. 
and probably came closest to giving a truthful account of what happened that night. And, you know, I'm I'm hoping that testimony was shared with, you know, Erica's family. We just don't know what it is publicly. But, uh, you know, when the police gave their theory of what happened, I'm sure they took into account what they thought Jan Franks had said. Mm-hmm. And I think that was their they were probably a lot closer to the conclusion of what really happened. Yeah. That when I first uh, looked up this case and I read the part about the attorney, not, not saying what she knew that, that frustrated me so much. (laughs) Oh yeah. I I, just, I was surprised she hung on to that argument for so long. If your client's dead, then your client can't be harmed. So I don't know why she fought that so hard I don't either that's that's what I was saying the whole time I you know I was just like if if she's dead then why does it matter what you what you say that she knew like nothing could happen to her I guess in the end it's not important that we know what they said it's important that Erica's family knows and I pray they do yeah, exactly. Shelly, you have been very thorough. Thanks. You contributed some things we didn't know. Montel yeah. Williams. He's not still <laughs> on, is he? No, I think he went off the air, gosh, a long time ago. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. We're going to Cleveland tonight and Michael McFarland, who writes and performs his special brand of anthemic indie rock. Tonight we're featuring a song, More Than You Believe You Are. I asked Michael the inspiration for his song, and I loved his answer. He said he was giving an interview when he came to realize that the best songs he's written all had messages that he needed to hear and internalize at the moment he wrote them. When this interviewer asked him, well, what do you need to hear now? This song was the answer. There's a new music video for this song. You can find it on YouTube or Facebook. And you can find Michael McFarlane on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Go follow him to see what he's up to. And pay a visit to his website, michaelmcfarlandmusic.com. Well, let's have another listen to More Than You Believe You Are by Michael McFarland. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Ohio Mysteries is produced by Stephen Yoder and Paula Schleiss. Special thanks to our Patreon and PayPal supporters. Thank you, Audionautics, Daniel Birch, and Adarin for the music. And of course, to all of you who support our show by listening and telling friends and family about us. You can find us on Twitter at Mysteries Ohio. You can find us on Facebook by just searching for Ohio Mysteries. We are also on Instagram at Ohio Mysteries. Was it dangerous? To harbor your heart on your sleeve Turn your chains to dust Break your shackles and pack up and leave Did you wait? Holding your breath Long since the light turned from red Did you stay? Scared after death Knowing that life lies
Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. 
Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.